G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop Dapple Podcast, Acast, wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd really appreciate a few moments of your time to do that. Um, so joining Brian and myself in a, in a well, I, I'm actually in the studio, which is a bit weird, um, but uh, virtually, I suppose, would be um, would be yeah, Dr. Andy Yale, who's one of our lecturers here in uh, veterinary oncology at the RVC. Thank you, Andy, for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And Andy's uh, fresh off uh, as a as a newly um, qualified European specialist in veterinary oncology. Is that is that the right term? Uh, yep, spot on. <laughs> Oh, very good. So, congratulations to you, Andy. And uh, and I thought what we would um, what we talk about would be um, uh, canine cutaneous mast cell tumors. And um, and thank you for um, kindly agreeing and, and thinking it was a, a a good topic. I don't often get that response from people, um, but normally they run away from me when I when I approach them. But um, but thank you very much. Um, so so maybe if we if we get started, so what, could you maybe just run through what what are mast cell tumors please and and um and why do we think they develop so uh mast cell tumors they're you know one of the most common um or they are the most common cutaneous uh tumor in dogs and um i'm sure most uh, vets will have come across them essentially they are tumors that arise from uh, mast cells as the name implies and these are normally um cells that are part of the immune system uh involved in uh, the allergic response and essentially these um normal mast cells will become uh, neoplastic and proliferate and form a tumor. We don't uh, fully understand why that happens. Um, Generally speaking, cancer is uh, a genetic disease. So um, it's something that will develop from uh, accumulations and mutations. And um, one of the key mutations uh, that we do know about in mast cell tumors is to do with um, the CKIT gene. And this is essentially a um, oncogene that when mutated uh, drives um, cell proliferation and normally uh, in a, no- a non-neoplastic mast cell um, these receptors are activated uh, sort of when needed but if we have this mutation um, then mast cells will uh, proliferate uh, without stimulation so this receptor is constantly activated and yeah, although it's not present in every um, mast cell tumor, this is at least one um, very specific mutation that we are aware of that actually drives um, the development of these tumors. But I think it will be multifactorial. There'll be you know plenty of other um, drivers that we're unaware of yet. Maybe we'll get to that at the end of the podcast, Andy. But but are there any risk factors for for mast cell tumor development? Um, we know a few. Um, probably the breed of dog is one of the um, one risk factor that we're aware of. So um, most dogs uh, or a breed that are um, overrepresented for mast cell tumors are uh, dogs of bulldog descent. So um, things like boxers, Boston terriers, pugs, um, uh, we know that they're um, predisposed to um, developing mast cell tumors then we also have uh, dogs such as labradors golden retrievers um, staffies and uh, sharpays are uh, mentioned as well so and we know in some of those dogs such as golden retrievers there's um, genetic uh, links that have been uh, documented um, and as well as just 
uh, breed, we tend to find that age is um, a risk factor, which is usually true of most cancer, to be honest. So older dogs um, uh, are predis or at higher risk um, compared to younger dogs. So uh, those are uh, the main risk factors. We don't know of any uh, sort of other carcinogen or environmental um, uh, risk factors um, at the moment. And, and so how do these dogs normally present? Um, it can be very varied. So Marcel tumors um, are usually or sometimes termed the great pretender because they can look like um, anything and they have a very varied um, uh, biologic behavior. So on one end of the spectrum, they can be um, almost benign um, and then the opposite end of the spectrum, they can be uh, highly aggressive uh, and malignant. Most dogs will present just with one mass, um, usually cutaneous, um, although sometimes we can see um, Marcel tumors being subcutaneous and they're often uh, misidentified as lipomas just on physical exam. So I think that's always one uh, to, to have in the back of your mind. Uh, in terms of visual appearance, they can uh, look like anything. Um, they can look like warts, skin tags, um, through to more obvious masses. Um, and most of the time, certainly with lower grade tumors, they tend to be relatively small. Owners might say they've been growing slowly over the last few months. Um, but sometimes with the higher grade tumors, they can grow um, very quickly. They can uh, become very large and uh, ulcerate. And sometimes you'll see these um, uh, masses um, fluctuate in size or become very itchy for the dog because um the mast cells contain histamine and if they're uh, knocked or the dog's licking them they can degranulate and become quite irritating so i think if you have a mass uh with a history of a dog being irritated by it or fluctuating in size and that's definitely a red flag for a possible um mast cell tumor and and what would be your your general approach to to these sort of masses because basically i've been thinking about it you're going to you know, cutaneous tumors are going to be things that owners see quite um, obviously, and I suppose they'd have lots of questions about. So, do you, do you have um, a, a different approach to to mast cell tumors, or if that's what you suspect compared to um, other things? But as you said, they can look like anything. So, how do we get around that conundrum? So, I suppose, yeah, what what is your general diagnostic approach? Yeah, I think um, the the key thing initially is to achieve. Um, you know, a, a diagnosis as to what the cutaneous mass is. And I think, um, you know, my advice generally, whenever you have a cutaneous mass, um, is to recommend um, sampling with fine needle aspirates to start with. So um, even if you think, um, based on palpation, this is a lipoma, um, as I said, we can see mast cell tumors um, subcutaneously as well. So um, I think the first step is figuring out what it is so fine needle aspirate is um, the place to start these are tumors that will exfoliate their cells quite well so um, the vast majority of the time cytology um, based on an aspirate is uh, is enough um, the one thing that i would uh, advise because these tumors as i said can uh, or the cells can degranulate and cause histamine release um, i would if you have a suspicion of a mast cell tumor or uh, want to be extra cautious is administer clofenamine um, prior to sampling just to try and reduce that risk. If um, cytology is diagnostic and you have a confirmed mast cell tumor, then usually the next 
um, step is to uh, stage the dog. So to try and um, understand if there's any spread and if so, where uh, that is, because that will usually guide um, what you do next. The question that uh, is always asked is, do we stage um, before removing the tumor or afterwards? Um, And usually that question is asked because most of the time, Marcel tumors are low grade and don't spread. Um, so it's always a balance of how um, invasive you want to be uh, uh, before surgery or whether you want to um, uh, sort of save that uh, for um, after surgery if needed. So um, usually that decision as to when to stage or how um, much you should push to stage the dog is based on um, different prognostic factors for, for the muscle tumors. So would you like to go into what some of these important prognostic factors are? Yeah, we um, there's quite a lot uh, for mast cell tumors, but I think some of uh, we'll, we'll go through some of the key ones. I think something uh, so that there's quite a few that we can um, detect based on the history or physical exam, which is um, often most important because that's the information that you have when you first see uh, the case. So. Uh, things like um, even the breed might guide you a little bit. So um, as I said earlier, often dogs like bulldogs or boxers are predisposed, but usually those breeds actually tend to have lower grade um, mast cell tumors. On the other hand, dogs like um, Sharpays, uh, anecdotally at least, tend to have much more aggressive mast cell tumors. So if you um, have a Sharpay already, that might make you want to um, stage uh, before any treatment. Also other things like rapid growth, um, an ulcerated mass, or tumors that are um, on the mucocutaneous junction, uh, subungal area, and especially um, muscle tumors on the scrotum or um, prepuce. These all tend to behave quite aggressively, um, or can do at least. So any of those factors on your um, history or physical exam uh, would, I think, already make me more concerned for uh, a higher grade tumor. Things that then you can assess um, uh, sort of after physical exam would be things like um, stage. So obviously a higher stage of disease or uh, more spread would be um, a negative factor. Um, You can find out information based on histology. So the tumor grade, um, mitotic index, or um, as we'll uh, discuss, and as I've mentioned already, things like the um, mutation status in that CKIT gene um, or other immunohistochemistry markers. So there's a lot of things that um, will influence uh, prognosis beyond just um, tumor grade, but I think the it's mainly those factors based on the history or physical exam that uh, will probably influence your um, clinical approach uh initially because that's the information that you'll have um you know during your consultation that will probably guide whether you want to work this dog up uh before surgery or whether you say you know let's just remove it and have a look at all those other factors i've mentioned um and then come back and stage if needed and when you're talking about staging for marcel tumors i know that that um Oncologists, if if I could put a blanket term in general, would like to some advanced sort of imaging for that and aspirate lymph nodes, liver, spleen. Is is that is that kind of the approach for mast cell tumors, or is it more targeted to to lymph nodes or 
or biopsying other other masses? Yeah, so um, you, you're right there. I think the main um, areas that we're interested in when it comes to mast cell um, tumors specifically are local lymph nodes, liver and spleen. So um, they tend to have quite a predictable metastatic pattern. So usually they'll spread to regional lymph nodes first um, and then liver and spleen. Um, we, unlike with other types of cancer, with mast cell tumors, we actually very rarely assess the thorax um, because the risk of pulmonary metastasis is very low. Um, it's not something that I've ever seen. So um, we really just focus on lymph nodes, liver, spleen. Um, the A couple of things to bear in mind with that is, uh, firstly, when we're considering uh, lymph node aspirates, the first question is, which lymph nodes do we sample? So if you have a mast cell tumor on, uh, for example, the distal hock, uh, the closest lymph nodes to the tumor will be popliteal, followed by uh, inguinal. So most of the time, um, that should be the direction that the mast cell tumor spreads. So you could probably sample the popliteal lymph node um, and you know see what you get. I think the th- the thing that's very important and we're understanding more now is that actually we can see tumors um, skip the closest lymph node. So it may be that uh, it spreads straight to the inguinal and kind of misses the popliteal or especially with tumors on the head or oral cavity, uh, the lymphatic drainage can be really unpredictable. So uh, a, a, a mass on um, the left muzzle, for example, may not drain to the left mandibular lymph node. It may go to the other side or it may skip to the retropharyngeals or uh, prescapular lymph nodes um, even. So uh, we can um, use techniques now to actually try and identify which lymph nodes to sample more specifically with um, uh, imaging techniques, usually involving um, CT. So although that's not possible in every case, I think it's just having a, a understanding that the metastatic sort of route via the lymphatics is not always straightforward. Um, And I would always sample uh, with cytology, even if um, a lymph node is normal in size. We know, uh, or some studies have shown almost 50% of normal sized lymph nodes in dogs with mast cell tumors can still harbor metastatic disease. So it's one of the uh, points that I always try and get across is to um, you know, sample a lymph node regardless of its size, and just bear in mind that it may be you need to sample um, multiple lymph nodes, not just the one that's closest um, to to the tumor. And finally, when it comes to the liver and spleen, um, obviously those samples are done ultrasound guided, and I think it's important to remember that you should sample those regardless of how they appear on ultrasound, so they can look completely normal, but um, be full of metastasis so um yeah just sample regardless of how they look so you can can i ask andy i suppose it's a, a general sort of question when when um so if a marcel tumor get, does spread to a lymph node is it is it focal within that or should it be diffuse and i suppose the same probably question for the liver and spleen because i was pictured that it might be a bit of potluck that you're aspirating and and getting I suppose um, a representative sample of the of the cells in that lymph node, and is it you know maybe luck that you find a mast cell tumor, or should you expect to see um, mast cells if it if it has spread to the lymph node like throughout the lymph lymph node? Does that make sense, or if it's yeah, it makes sense. So 
with the liver and spleen, it should be diffuse. So um, most of the time you can just sample um, the parenchyma kind of uh, randomly and you you should, if there's met metastasis there, you should detect it. Uh, with the lymph node, um, it, it, it can be a little bit more focal. So um, in about 20% of cases, cytology may miss metastasis if it's, um, even if it's there. And that's, as you said, just because you might not be getting a representative um, sample. So the best thing to do, um, and what we'll do here is once we've identified the sentinel lymph node, so the lymph node that drains specifically an individual tumor, we'll usually just remove that for histology anyway, um, even if our initial cytology is um, negative, just because, you know, there's definitely cases where we've uh, had no evidence of spread on cytology, but then it comes back uh, quite obviously on histology. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. So, so assuming um, that there's no obvious evidence of of metastasis at, at the time, so what what would you recommend as a treatment for um, mast cell tumors? Um, I think if you have uh, no obvious evidence of spread, then the general recommendation is to remove the mass um, surgically with as wide a margins as possible. Um, as I said, I think even if the lymph node is sort of clear on cytology, I would um, advise to remove that um, anyway, uh, if possible. Obviously, if they're really small or quite awkward to access, it may not be possible. But um, I think where it is, um, that should be removed uh, as well. And uh, even if your cytology has shown lymph node metastasis, um, as long as there's no spread um, further to the liver and spleen, then I would still recommend surgery in those cases as well. We know that uh, dogs, even with lymph node metastasis, can still do um, very well as long as the lymph node is removed. Um, so yeah, generally speaking, surgery of the mass plus or minus the local lymph node um, is the recommendation. And then you can sort of base decisions on whether any further treatment is needed uh, based on the histology um, and some of those other prognostic factors that I mentioned earlier. And so if you're going to do the perform surgery, what margins should you should you have? And I remember this is, you know, this has been spoken about many, many years ago, but is it still a recommendation of like wide margins? I think it was three centimetres and or tissue planes. Is that kind of still the the current recommendation? So we have a bit more um, evidence now looking at different surgical approaches. So um, certainly, uh, yeah, th sort of three centimeter margins was always um, discussed for mast cell tumors, but it may be that that's a bit excessive now for um, some of them. So we know low-grade mast cell tumors can often be excised completely with one centimeter margins. Intermediate grade can usually be excised completely with two centimeters. Uh, and we do often still recommend um, wider margins for uh, those that are higher grade. I guess the issue is we don't always know the grade or rarely know the grade prior to surgery. One of the um, approaches we have now is called the modified um, proportional margin system, where we take the maximum diameter of the tumor. Um, so let's say it's um, one one and a half centimeters, and then we use that uh, as the width of the margin. So for a one and a half centimeter mass, we would take one and a half centimeter lateral margins um, and one fascial plane deep, um, but we cap that margin limit at two centimeters. 
So even if you have a three centimeter mass, you would still just take two centimeters. And studies have shown that in 95% of cases that should achieve a complete excision. So um, that's quite a nice uh, system to use. Obviously, it may be if we have a mass on the distal limb that we can't even achieve a centimetre. And um, that may be fine uh, because we have a lot of options following surgery to sort of deal with any residual cells. Um, I think if you're in that situation where your excision is going to be very marginal, it's just making sure you, uh, before surgery, sort of already have a a plan in place for maybe what you're going to do afterwards if it is indeed um, incompletely excised. Okay, so so you, um, so you send do, do some surgery and send that off, and you, you get um, some histopathology results. So so you, um, uh, so I suppose what 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 do what do they tend to sort of comment about in that histopathology, and what what would be your what's your focus, or how do you read those those reports, Andy? So there's a few you can get quite a lot of detail from the histopathology reports. The main thing uh, that we look at, and it's usually the main focus of the report, is the tumour grade, so um, sort of how aggressive that is. Um, Usually, and and that's usually just reported um, uh, in in the main comment, if you then sort of read back through the bulk of the text um, in the report, you can usually pick out um, other things like the mitotic index, so that's how many cells are uh, sort of actively dividing. And we know that... Uh, independent of tumor grade, there are different um, thresholds that are prognostic. So for cutaneous mast cell tumors, for example, a mitotic index of over five uh, cells per 10 high power field is uh, those dogs would do much worse compared to those um, with a lower uh, mitotic index. So those are two. um, uh, So grade and mitotic index are very important. The other thing that we assess uh, is how um, whether the tumor has been excised completely or not, and by uh, how much. So completeness of excision is very important and will guide uh, whether we need to follow up with any further treatment or not. Um, when it comes to the lymph node, it, it, we have um, there's been some recent publications that show um, we can get um, a lot of information from the lymph node, and it's not just a sort of yes and no, is it metastatic? Uh, we have a four sort of category system now that is either classifies a lymph node as non-metastatic, pre-metastatic, early metastatic, or just overt metastasis. And that's based on how many mast cells they see, whether they're clustering, whether uh, where they are in the lymph node. And we know that that's actually um, prognostic with dogs doing worse if uh, sort of the more uh, uh the more metastasis they have in the lymph nodes. So, um, yeah, there's quite a lot that we can assess. I think um, the main things that we focus on, as I said, is going to be grade and how uh, sort of excised they are because those that are low grade, completely excised, without any other um, prognostic factors, we're unlikely to do anything more. Um, Whereas if we have tumors that are higher grade or incompletely excised, then those are the ones where we're going to need to recommend something else so um yeah although there's a lot to focus on it's usually grade and completeness of excision that the main things and are, are there different systems of, of grading andy is it is it a um different standards depending on different pathologists or or is it quite uniform internationally so uh, it can be confusing um 
when you first see a report. So there are, um, or there have been many um, grading systems, but now we'll pretty much just use um, two systems. So one of them um, is called the Patnik system, and that's a three-tier system that grades them as uh, low, intermediate, or high grade, or sometimes you'll see them written as grade one, two, or three. Um, and this was sort of the older system um, and what we found is that those that were graded as intermediate grade, they could still have quite varied biologic behavior. So some of them um, would behave, you know, very much like a low grade tumor and some would behave high grade. And also there was a lot of um, differences in how the pathologists uh, graded those grade um, two tumors. So a second system was proposed um, called the cupel system, which just grades them as low or high grade. Um, and the reality is that now we pretty much use them both together. So most of the time pathologists will report, um, the patnic grade and cupel grade, and we look at them, um, together. And the main time that it's useful is if you have a intermediate grade tumor on the uh, original system, then you can look at your, um, cupel grade. And if it's low grade and it's likely to behave on the sort of, uh, lower grade, spectrum and if it's high grades then obviously you're more worried so we look at them um both together you can um get an idea of, of grade based on cytology so normally the term grade is very strictly applied to histology only but um there have been studies looking at the two-tier system uh on cytology and actually in most cases it's quite accurate so um you may see the term cytologic grading, which um, yeah, which has been proposed for mast cell tumors and can be quite useful if you don't want to take a biopsy prior to planning surgery. Well, that, that's that's quite good. It's actually if you if you send off a, an a FNA to a clinical pathologist, they, they might actually have a cytological grading or what they expect it to be. Exactly. Um, you may need to ask them to sort of apply that system if they are not doing it routinely. But um, yeah, you should be able to get. Um, uh, an idea of tumor grade based on cytology um it will it, it doesn't correlate in about 10 percent of cases and in those it tends to underestimate tumor grade so there may be a small proportion where you're missing a high grade tumor but most of the time it's correct that's pretty good that's pretty mm. good and and that helps with that um uh planning i suppose of of margins and and what you what you might want to what you what you might want to do exactly yeah it can be very helpful So we have um, a lot of options available, um, which is good, but it can get, um, you know, a bit confusing. So I, I guess the first um, question is, do you need further treatment or not? And uh, as I said earlier, if you have a low or intermediate grade tumor that's being completely excised, that surgery um, should prove curative as long as there's no um, uh, metastasis. If you, uh, I guess the times when you're going to consider further treatment would be firstly if you have um, incomplete excisions so this would be um, a situation where you could consider further local treatment to deal with the scar so that could be um, a second surgery if the site uh, allows it could be radiation therapy to try and kill um, the residual cells um, or it could be things like chemotherapy 
chemotherapy is obviously a systemic treatment so it's probably not um ideal if you're treating just a local problem um but it certainly can be used and uh, you know studies have shown that the rec- rate of recurrence is very very low um if you combine uh, sorry, if you treat an incompletely excised mast cell tumor with radiation or chemotherapy afterwards. I guess the thing to um, uh, point out, though, is that if the tumor is low or intermediate grade, even if it's being um, incompletely excised, not many of them uh, end up recurring. So only about 10 to 30% will recur. So actually just monitoring the scar um, is definitely an option as well and um, you know a lot of clients certainly if radiation or chemotherapy is not possible or the site isn't amenable to a second surgery uh, monitoring may be fine because actually the vast majority um, won't recur Uh, it's a different story if it's high grade but certainly for those lower intermediate grades um, monitoring may be uh, fine with the, with regard to monitoring, would mm. you would you just monitor the actual where you've excised that Andy, or would you would you think about like biopsying the the lymph node or FNAing the lymph node again intermittently? So I think it um, it it depends a bit. If you um, certainly you need to monitor the scar, and often that can just be done by palpation. Um, if you have any thickening or the dog's suddenly becoming bothered by it where it wasn't before, then those would be. Um, things that are maybe concerning for recurrence um i would always palpate the lymph nodes as a minimum and certainly if uh the lymph nodes are still present if you've not removed them then yes i think the ideal thing would be to sample them um as well and usually that's done like every three months um yeah so it needs to be uh you know quite um uh, detailed monitoring because certainly um, if something rela- uh, relapses or recurs, then you want to pick that up as soon as possible. The uh, other t- sort of type of further treatment that we have is um, systemic treatment, such as chemotherapy or targeted therapies. And it's sort of opposite to the local treatments for incompletely excised tumors, we tend to use the systemic treatments if there's evidence of spread. So um, whether that's uh, just lymph node that hasn't that's metastatic but not removed um if you have liver and spleen um, metastasis those would both be instances where um chemotherapy would be an option um we also recommend chemotherapy in dogs with any uh, high grade mast cell tumor so even if it's been excised completely just because that risk of metastasis is much higher uh, and there's always a small chance it's been missed on staging we'll always recommend chemotherapy for those dogs um, as well as what we would term high risk mast cell tumors so those are those that may not necessarily be high grade but they might be high risk based on um, the location so maybe a scrotal mast cell tumor or one that has um, a kit mutation or um, high mitotic index those sorts of things would uh, usually recommend chemotherapy for them as well thanks andy so so you, if we uh, so if we go go um go back are there any cases where you would not advise surgery um there's a few uh or, or a couple of instances certainly if you have dogs with stage four disease so that's spread to the liver and spleen um we would very rarely advise surgery just because the prognosis in those cases is so poor um so usually you know, your average survival for dogs with liver and spleen metastasis is three or four months with um, 
that's with chemotherapy. So um, we rarely advise surgery in those cases. Um, I guess the other situation is um, if you have a tumor that just can't be excised easily, um, for example, very large tumors um, in awkward places, um, you know, sometimes surgery is going to leave a large open wound to heal, which, um, you know, is maybe uh, fine, uh, maybe okay, but it's not um, for every owner. So um, yeah, if it's a very awkward or large tumor, then sometimes we won't advise it and we'll discuss other options instead. And and of those options, you mentioned chemotherapy before, and that be similar protocols you would have if you would excise the um, the, the, the mast cell tumor? And is are there any other treatments apart from chemo yeah so um yes if you have a a tumor that's not been excised you know regardless of whether that's due to it being large or awkward or whether it's due to there being um sort of extensive metastasis you'd uh, you know you could consider um the, the same chemotherapy protocols that you would if you have an incompletely excised tumor um we do, there is a, a new treatment for mast cell tumors that's quite uh, recent that's an alternative to um, just medical management for these non-surgical cases. And that's a drug called um, t- tigilinol tiglate, or the brand name is Stelfonta, which I think more people will be um, familiar with. And this is um, an intratumoral injection that's actually um, specifically indicated for non-surgical um, mast cell tumors as long as they're non-metastatic. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a list of sort of specific um, conditions in terms of the drug licensing in the data sheet, in terms of how big they can be, what location. Um, but if you have a mast cell tumor that um, uh, sort of fits those um, criteria, then it can be, um, you know, definitely an option. So as I said, it's given as an injection to the tumor and usually within a few days the tumor will become necrotic and literally drop off and um it does leave quite a large or it does leave an open wound um to heal by second intention but um dogs seem to tolerate that um very well and usually it's healed um within a few weeks so um it's a drug that's sort of been um you know marketed more for use in general practice for for cases where um you know, surgery would be very challenging. Um, and yeah, it seems to be um, very popular. I think the uh, things to consider um, if you're thinking of using it is obviously if you inject the tumor and it drops off uh, very necrotic, you're not going to be able to do histology on that. So ideally you would want to biopsy these tumors first to get a, an idea of the tumor grade um, or rely on cytologic grading. And I guess the other thing that you're not going to have is the histologic uh, assessment of tumor margins. So um, you, you, there's a few things that you're sort of doing a, a bit blind with these cases. Um, it does seem from very recent data that the recurrence rates are quite low. So only about 10% will recur at one year, uh, which is very similar to um, you know statistics compared to those treated surgically. So it seems like it's you know, dealing with residual cells um, around the tumor, uh, and, and it's definitely a cha- an attractive option for challenging low cases. But it, uh, but I think, um, yeah, there just needs to be a discussion of those limitations with owners so that they're at least aware um, of them. Uh, but yeah, it's you know quite an exciting uh, yeah treatment that's licensed specifically for uh, 
canine tumors and it's not often that we have you know specifically licensed uh drugs for oncology we usually just rely on um human medications that's, that's pretty pretty exciting especially for something that's that's pretty common um mm. is it available in in um the uk or europe or uh, is it just yeah, states? it's uh i think it's well it's definitely available in the uk uh and the states and i presume if not now probably very soon um elsewhere so yeah it's being used um a lot right now so it's very exciting um and it'd be good to get some more sort of data on that so have um have you used that um with us uh it's not something that we've used yet um just because as i said it there's a number of criteria in terms of the licensing that the patient needs to meet and uh, in the referral setting we're lucky i guess to have a um uh, you know specialist surgeons for some of these challenging cases or the option to follow up treatment with radiation so or, um you know it, it definitely um it's an option for us if a client uh you know may may not be able to pursue those more specialist treatments um and that's why I said it's usually a bit more aimed for general practice potentially. Um, but generally speaking, it's a very useful thing to sort of have, um, I guess, uh, in the back of our minds for cases that um, that we may need to use it. But uh, yeah, I think it's used um, a lot uh, in general practice at the moment, but we've not used it ourselves here yet. Fair, fair enough. Um, sounds quite exciting there, doesn't it? So, mm. so what do you think would, or what, what currently is their best sort of um, chemotherapy treatment for mast cell tumours and, and are there are there different options? So we have, uh, again, a variety of options, um, which is, is good um, because we can uh, tailor what we offer, I guess, to um, patients specifically or the client needs. So generally speaking, um, there are, or the distinction that I think is important to make is when we use the term chemotherapy, we usually talk about traditional chemotherapy drugs that designed to um, directly kill the cancer cells. We also have treatments that we will term um, targeted therapies as well. Um, and these are um, treatments that are designed to inhibit specific receptors on the cancer cells to try and kill them or inhibit cell growth sort of by a different uh, mechanism to traditional chemotherapy. So in terms of the traditional chemotherapy drugs, the main ones that we'll consider are things like vimblastine. Um, so that's an injection that's given intravenously. And usually um, if we're following up uh, on, a, for example, a high-grade mast cell tumor that's been removed and we want to treat in the adjuvant setting, we'll usually just give eight doses across three months. Um, it's really well tolerated. Um, the main risk would be things like myelosuppression. Um, and uh, so that's sort of probably one of the most commonly used protocols. We also have um, an oral chemotherapy drug called lamustine, um, which again can be given, uh, it's usually given once every three weeks, again for four to six doses. Um, and we don't have a clear, uh, clear evidence as to one being better than the other. So we may discuss the pros and cons for each client or dog um, uh, individually and we can also combine the two drugs in an alternating protocol which uh, I tend to recommend for the higher grade um, mast cell tumors. We then have some of uh, these targeted therapies so um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors so drugs like tocerinib or mesitinib um, that sort of trade names for those are palladia or marzivet um, and these uh, will inhibit 
the KIT receptor, which um, we said earlier is mutated in some mast cell tumors. Um, they also inhibit other receptors involved with things like angiogenesis. So they act in a slightly different way. And at the moment, we tend to use those mostly in the gross disease setting. So if we have a visible uh, tumor or very high metastatic uh, burden, and that's mainly because that's where the uh, most evidence um, comes from at the moment. Um, these are oral tablets, so it's quite easy for the owners to give them at home. Um, but they certainly do have a longer list of potential side effects, um, such as GI toxicity, uh, myelosuppression, uh, hepatotoxicity, hypertension, proteinuria. So the list is a bit longer, although generally they're still very well tolerated. Um, so yeah, we tend to recommend the targeted therapies more in the gross disease setting um, and then your traditional chemotherapy agents in the sort of adjuvant setting um, or gross disease setting. So there's a slightly different, uh, I guess, indications for each, but generally we have a lot of options that we can just tailor to the case specifically. So can I ask Andy, and do not really want to put you on the spot, but um, with applications of chemotherapy to say those sort of patients that you would think more at risk, do we have some data to say how that helps with the, I suppose, with their um, survival with when you use those therapies in, in general, or do we, or is the data a bit, um, I suppose, dirty as it, as it were? Yeah, so the, the uh, definitely... Um, you know, if we have a dog with um, gross disease, so like a visible tumor, we know that these chemotherapy agents will help. So we'll often see, um, you know, reduction in tumor size, either sort of a complete response where it will disappear or, um, you know, uh, just a slight reduction in size. And obviously, if we um, compare that to not treating at all, where the tumor would just continue to um, progress, um, you know, we know that there's a uh, you know, benefit to um, using these drugs. I guess the data becomes a bit more murky when we're looking at specific survival benefits for specific protocols. And the reason why it can sometimes be challenging is, um, as we said at the beginning, there's so many different prognostic factors um, histologically, immunohistochemically for these tumors. Sometimes it can be difficult to compare um, these subgroups specifically. And we're starting to understand that a bit more now. Generally speaking, though, um, certainly in your higher risk um, or higher grade mass of tumors, you know, we would say there's, um, you know, enough evidence to recommend adjuvant um, chemotherapy. I think where it gets a bit more difficult is, as I said, if we have these low grade tumors that are just incompletely excised, um, the risk of recurrence, whether you give chemo or not, seems to be quite similar. So I think in those cases, um, uh, you know, monitoring, as we discussed, is, you know, we will often discuss now um, as a, a sensible option. Um, so, yeah, the it, it depends, I think, is the short answer. No, no, no fair enough, fair enough. I, I, I didn't think there was going to be a, a particular answer, but I suppose mm. it, it, it seems that the you'd be depending on on kind of, on kind of the grade you'd be more keen to um 
to follow up with that and, and the evidence suggests that which i which i suppose is 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 probably the the important bit so so what do you do andy when when you get some of these dogs that present with multiple mast cell tumors um so i suppose in different locations or or develop multiple ones over, over time do you manage these differently or do you treat them in a similar way they can always be quite difficult cases mainly from uh the owner point of view so you know f- for us uh objectively it's very easy to say you know you need to remove them all surgically or um and follow up with treatment sort of based on histology but for a client that can be difficult sometimes because uh, you know the surgeries can be much more extensive or we're often in situations where we'll remove a tumor two months later another one crops up we remove it another one crops up and these dogs that are you know just predisposed to developing multiple new muscle tumors uh, that can be quite difficult for the owner to justify sort of multiple surgeries. Um, I, there's not an easy answer. One option is you, um, as long as the previous ones have generally tended to be low grade, you could um, monitor some of them, save them up, and then maybe remove a few at a time and just try and, um, yeah, sort of save them and just do fewer surgeries. The alternative, if um for patient factors or client factors, multiple surgeries isn't um, possible is you could consider chemotherapy in those cases, um, either tyrosine kinase inhibitors or um, traditional chemotherapy. Um, there, there is some evidence to use um, a drug called chlorambucil, so an oral um, chemotherapy agent at sort of lower doses that's given each day. Um, and this can be a bit of a uh, more gentle option, I suppose, um, for some of these cases, um, and can still have uh, sort of reasonable response rates. Um, but yeah, essentially, you're looking at either sort of multiple surgeries or um, batch surgeries, or m- managing them uh, medically with chemotherapy. Sometimes you'll find, um, or I think the important thing to remind the owners is that chemotherapy to treat the tumors that are present is not necessarily preventative for new ones developing. So, um, yeah, they can be very difficult, uh, mainly because clients get frustrated, but yeah, generally you have two options, uh, surgery or, or chemotherapy still. And, and I think we touched on this before, but the, the monitoring involved for following a successful treatment of Marcel tumor, that'd be reevaluating every, every three months to look at the, say, look at where the Marcel tumor was, was removed and, and aspirating the, the local lymph nodes, or at least sort of feeling them and, and thinking about aspirating them. Exactly. So I think for those that are sort of low or intermediate grade, um, uh, yeah, the monitoring usually is going to be the scar and the local lymph node, um, ideally with, um, sort of repeated sampling each time if it's not being removed. Um, if you have a tumor that's um, sort of higher risk, so a high grade one, um, usually, um, or or one that's maybe spread to the lymph node already, uh, I would usually then include the liver and spleen in that monitoring as well and sample those um, initially every three months as well. So it can be quite um, involved, but uh, certainly those high risk muscle tumors can you know, go on to develop future metastasis. So I think it's very important to screen for that regularly. So would it be fair to say, Andy, that you're 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 kind of only in remission from having a mast cell tumor, or that's the or or that's the thought rather than to cure? Uh, it depends. I think um, 
I mean, as oncologists, we're very hesitant sometimes to use the term cure, but I think for low-grade or intermediate-grade mast cell tumors, um, I, I think you know we do achieve um, a cure in those in many of those cases, whether they're incompletely excised or not, um, because you know uh, there's only a low proportion that recur or spread, even in dogs with um, lymph node metastasis. Again, as long as it's not spread further. Um, dogs can do very well. So the median survival is reported as uh, over six years for dogs, even with lymph node metastasis, as long as that lymph node has been removed. So in those dogs, um, you know, they can do very well, if not be cured. With high-grade mast cell tumors, um, you know, or high-risk mast cell tumors, we're definitely more cautious. And um, yes, even if you remove the tumor and there's no sign of spread at the beginning, um, you know, they can definitely recur or spread in the future. So those are the ones where monitoring is particularly important and you have to warn the owners that, you know, there's a definitely a chance this will come back. That's, um, that's a pretty good um, uh, median survival time com- compared to if you're, what, what did we find out last week from uh, Dan O'Neill's study group that if you're a French bulldog, your life expectancy is is about four years, isn't it? So, <laughs> you, uh, so, so there you go. Um, yeah. In, in the UK, that's, that's interesting. But so that that's um, really good. And, and with prognosis, um, uh, any anyway, and, and outcomes for dogs with mast cell tumour. So so that that's like quite quite a range. So if you remove a lymph node and it's spread to there, that's six years. So I suppose low grade would be at least that length of time. And then the higher grades, does it does it depend on? multiple lymph nodes or spleen or liver involvement to to sort of give more of an accurate prognosis exactly it's just such a wide um spectrum so yeah on one end uh, we can probably cure dogs if they're low grade removed completely and as i said even if there's some lymph node spread um you know at least yeah one paper's reported survival over six years still so um we've got that sort of sitting one end of the spectrum and then if we have dogs with liver and spleen metastasis on the opposite end of the spectrum survival even with chemotherapy is just a few months so um it is highly variable and i think um the because uh, owners will often ask you know what's the prognosis uh, you know right from the beginning when all you know is that the dog has a mast cell tumor so um you know it's important to uh, educate them that the prognosis will depend on stage a lot of histologic factors um, uh, and things like that. So it's a bit more complicated. And even when you have all of that information, you may not be able to pluck an exact number out of the air. Um, usually you can just give a more um, sort of uh, slightly more specific idea of which end of that spectrum they're going to sit on. And so I forgot um, to ask you, so if you're, if you're giving chemotherapy uh, as a follow, follow-up, whether, whether something has metastasized or, or, or not, or you've got evidence of that, do you, do you give um, antihistamines as well as the same time as, as uh, chemotherapy drugs? Um, if we have removed um, the mast cell tumor itself and we don't have a sort of big metastatic burden, we tend not to uh, need to continue to give the um antihistamines if we have a, a dog where the mast cell tumor can't be excised or there's sort of really significant um metastatic disease that we uh can't remove then in those dogs we'll often still give um uh, antihistamines and that's 
basically to reduce the risk of uh, degranulation of the mast cells because when they release histamine, uh, that can act on uh, the stomach to produce more um, acid. And we often see um, dogs with GI signs or um, ulceration. Um, so that's the sort of rationale behind um, giving it. And we'll often give that alongside, uh, so chlorphenamine, for example, alongside um, a proton pump inhibitor such as a meprazole as well, um, really to try and reduce the risk of um, uh, gastric uh, ulceration. Um, so yeah, we tend to use it basically in dogs with uh, gross disease, um, and we don't need to use it if they've had the tumor removed and there's no spread. And and finally, you you kind of touched on uh, new new treatments with the um, Stefanta. Um, but uh, are there any other uh, new developments coming and, and or areas of of research into canine mast cell tumors? Yeah, so I think in in terms of treatment, uh, as we said, I think the Stefanta is kind of the uh, newest thing. Um, it really, in terms of ongoing research. A lot at the moment is focused around our understanding of um, staging and the sort of significance of um, different uh, treatment recommendations based on tumor stage. So I think one of the big uh, areas that um, is being focused on is this concept of sentinel lymph nodes. So a lymph node that uh, we map with imaging that to basically find the exact node that drains a specific tumor in each dog rather than just relying on the principles of sampling the lymph node that's closest to the tumor um, and what we're finding is you know that if we base our staging on first principles of the closest lymph node to the tumor we're missing a lot of metastatic disease so i think that's one area um, of research not just in mast cell tumors but uh, generally and then um yeah also looking at then what we uh do in each of those settings so there was a recent paper that showed dogs with um, stage two disease so spread to the lymph nodes as long as we remove those surgically um, you know we don't need to necessarily follow up with chemotherapy you know historically we may have done because it felt like the right thing to do given that there was spread um, but you know we now know that actually they can still be managed surgically um, instead of needing to always use chemotherapy so I think those are the sort of areas that um, you know, research is uh, looking at now at sort of these specific subcategories, I guess, of disease and how best to treat each of those um, specifically. Okay, can I ask what what questions do do you have for for this area in mast cell tumors? Like, what would you like to know? Um, I think for me, um, the uh, you know, I think we we've kind of hit, uh, or, or we know a lot, uh, I guess, about. Um, you know, the tumors themselves in the sense of, um, uh, you know, the genetic aberrations, uh, receptor mutations. I think for me, the um, stuff that's interesting is more of this clinical aspect, especially with um, staging, because I think we do uh, still, you know, miss uh, metastatic disease in a lot of cases, whether that's and mainly, I think that's because we struggle to identify the correct lymph nodes to sample or struggle to remove them. So I think, um, you know, for me, I think the more that we hopefully uh, increase our detection of metastatic disease, it would be very interesting to, um, you know, try and uh, figure out actually if that's um, benefiting our patients. Obviously, it makes sense that if we're detecting more spread and removing it, that that will 
uh, help but until you actually have the evidence it's difficult to say for sure fair enough fair enough um is there anything else do you think that we've um that we've missed i thought it's a very comprehensive list that you gave me to read so uh, is, is there anything else you you uh, think we should comment on um i think we've probably covered most things it was a bit of a whistle-stop tour through mast cell tumors because you could talk about them for days um but hopefully that's covered yeah most things I think I think that's great. So we'll wrap it up there. And many many thanks for your your time today, Andy. Um, it's been it's been great. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Um, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts, that would be great. Um, and don't forget to tell your friends, fit friends. We're, we're happy for anyone really. Um, and we'll place a few show notes in the RVC pages. If you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, you can get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye bye.